When your patient complains of back pain, one of the possible reasons is spinal stenosis. How do you differentiate spinal stenosis from disc disease or other common back problems? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Clifford Tribue, an Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He specializes in disorders of the spine, including scoliosis and spinal deformity, cervical and lumbar disc and degenerative disease, spinal trauma, and spinal tumors. Welcome, Dr. Tribue. Thanks very much, Mark. Today we are discussing spinal stenosis. Dr. Tribue, what exactly is spinal stenosis? Well, spinal stenosis, Mark, is a degenerative condition of the lumbar spine in this case. The net result of arthritis of moving parts in the lumbar spine encroaches on the neural elements, and it's that encroachment that can cause the symptoms. And what are those symptoms? The symptoms are quite variable, actually, and in fact, the diagnosis is more clinical than it is radiographic. So the symptoms can start fairly insidiously, meaning just dull, achy back pain that the person who's afflicted might not even consider a problem, and can evolve to low back, buttock, and lower extremity pain, predominantly when they walk or stand still. Is this something that is severe? It's, again, highly variable. Some people have it, and it really will not impact their quality of life, and others will have quite profound effects. And in fact, it's the functional part of their deficits that we really focus on. For example, say you have someone who enjoys a daily walk with their spouse. They might, in fact, tell you they, a year ago, could walk a mile or two, and that was really a passion of theirs. And over recent months, that maximal walking distance progressively got less and less to the point where even walking around the block can be problematic. They can be quite symptom-free when they sit down, for example, but the deficits in their functional life can lead them to seek medical care. Why, when they stand up and walk, are the symptoms greater? Well, the theory is that the stenosis is not only a tightness around the nerve, but also also a vascular problem to the nerve, so that when they increase the demand on the nerve by standing, which has a propensity to pinch the nerve, that both the mechanical effect of pressure and the relative blood supply to the nerve is somewhat sacrificed. So this is a type of claudication in a way. In fact, the differential diagnosis is neurogenic claudication versus vascular claudication. How does the clinician differentiate between disc disease and spinal stenosis? Well, they certainly are related. I think the way the physician should think about it is, is the symptom primarily a result of nerve pressure? And in fact, many physicians will use the symptom of back pain to differentiate the two, meaning if back pain is present, that would be a degenerative disc, and if it's buttock or leg pain, that would be more classically for stenosis. While that is a classic differentiation, I think that there's too much overlap to draw a hard line in that. Well, is this a hard diagnosis to make? It's multifactorial, meaning that shoring up the diagnosis becomes more critical as you advance the care. So if I have someone who tells me they're starting to get a little buttock pain as they walk, but say, for example, using that last person, they were still walking, say, a mile a day, it's not that critical that you secure that diagnosis. It's just when you start ramping up your treatment level that uh, the diagnosis becomes more important to secure. Always check the vascular exam, make sure that the leg is viable, certainly. Check the pulses so you don't want to miss something that would be otherwise limb-threatening. But if you can distinguish the vascular from the claudicant, you can really follow the claudicant patient expectantly. Is this something that is common? 
extremely common, but again, to those out there in primary care, they will more commonly see the vascular claudicant than the neurogenic claudicant. So it really comes down to that differential. Unfortunately, frequently these patients overlap. Diagnostic testing can help you get through that. Ankle arm indices in the vascular lab can secure a vascular claudication. I frequently use epidural injections, which have both diagnostic and therapeutic potential benefit. For example, if I have someone who's claudicating and I have an MRI that demonstrates stenosis radiographically, but I'm not sure that the story fits the MRI, I might try an epidural. Now, if that epidural provides good pain relief, that's fairly good evidence that we're in the neurogenic side of things. Is it usually bilateral or is it usually unilateral? Trying to correlate where the stenosis exists on the MRI with the symptoms, particularly in laterality, can be a bit of a frustrating venture. Certainly, if there's a large asymmetry on the MRI, one would expect to see some asymmetry to the clinical complaints, but that's not a hard, fast rule. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Clifford Tribue, an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. We are discussing spinal stenosis. Dr. Tribue, what imaging studies would you proceed with when you think someone has spinal stenosis? Well, the first is the physical exam, as we talked about, and trying to, by the patient's story, distinguish the vascular to the neurogenic claudicant. Once you've fairly secured the neurogenic claudicant theory, then you have to decide whether or not you're going to pursue diagnostic studies at all. And that gets back to the functional aspect of the patient's complaints. To do an MRI or a CT or even radiographs, I think the, the, there should be some justification in terms of what you're going to learn from that diagnosis and how that knowledge is ultimately going to impact patient care. If someone's still walking a mile plus a day and has not got substantial limitations, truly you may stop right with patient conversation after a good physical exam. I encourage people to continue their activity level and pursue normal life because ultimately it's going to be that deficit of where they are from where they perceive they should be that's going to drive the diagnostic testing. So assuming someone's quite frustrated and has come to you because they've really lost that quality of life, then you would start with plain radiographs. And the plain radiographs will give you some insight to the overall alignment of the spine and the degree to which it's arthritic. Given stenosis is an arthritic condition, you should see some signs of that radiographically. You're also looking for concomitant deformity of the spine. For example, degenerative scoliosis or degenerative spondylolisthesis. These two conditions can substantially contribute to the complexity of treating spinal stenosis and would give you radiographic clues without an MRI or CT scan as to what's going on. And then if you proceed, would you get a CT scan or an MRI? In this day and age, if you've ever lay in an MRI, it is quite claustrophobic-inducing. So I would prefer an MRI. The detail of the neural elements is much better, and I would say that that is the state-of-the-art study. The CT scan I would reserve to revision situations where a patient has hardware in from a previous operation or a situation where they simply could not tolerate the nature of the MRI apparatus. If a patient has mild to moderate symptoms, how would you treat that patient? It's very difficult to measure pain, and anyone in this field has probably come to an appreciation of that. So I do spend a fair amount of time talking to patients about their functional life, not only their functional life, but also their functional goals. 
because you don't want to have a mismatch between their goals and what you can reasonably obtain. And frequently when people get back, particularly leg pain, they can sometimes panic a bit and fear that they are going to do themselves harm by continuing to pursue their normal activities. So a lot of the mild to moderately afflicted patients basically get uh, reassurance and the idea is they should continue to pursue their normal level of function even higher than they are if they're being a bit passive about it and ultimately let the disease process run its course. There really is no such thing with degenerative conditions of the lumbar spine of preventative surgical care. And in fact, I sometimes feel helpless as I talk to patients about what I have to offer them. Therapy, injections, and the like will sometimes be of benefit, but often come up short of a patient's goals. Well, what is the course of this disease? Fortunately, it can be quite benign, and that, again, is where we fall back on the reassurance side of the conversation. Even neurologic involvement to the point where you're getting buttock and leg pain from walking does not necessarily run a progressive or downhill course, and you can have people ebbing and flowing in terms of their functional life for years on end. So much like someone who has a bad knee or a bad hip and has an arthritic condition of those joints, the decision to pursue further care is a really balancing act that the patient has to go through in terms of the risk benefits of the surgery and the quality of life issues and perceived benefit of the operation. Do non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents or even a course of steroids help? I would say the non-steroidals are a mainstay of any arthritic condition in the lumbar spine. The systemic steroids, I would say, are a bit less used in my practice. I tend to provide local steroids through an epidural injection or nerve root blocks. But again, by the time I'm into the use of steroids, I'm more into the diagnostic side of that, trying to specifically identify which level of the lumbar spine is the predominant culprit. Do patients with this disorder ever get bladder and bowel dysfunction? That's a very late-stage problem. What you're referencing is a cauda equina syndrome, where someone gets bowel bladder incontinence, gait ataxia, and saddle anesthesia, or some variation of that triad. Most commonly, that's going to come on with a disc herniation, which is a more acute change to the spinal canal's diameter. Spinal stenosis is a more chronic one, and the nerves themselves tend to accommodate that evolving stenosis fairly well, which is why the course can be somewhat indolent. On the other hand, if you really question, particularly the elderly patient, you'll often come across a little bit of urinary symptoms, such as an urgency or difficulties initiating the stream. And if someone has severe pain, what were the traditional surgical procedures that we'd use? Once you've confirmed the diagnosis and you've confirmed that it's in fact the compression on the neural elements rather than the degenerative disc disease or the curve in degenerative scoliosis or the spondylolisthesis in that case, you address the surgical care towards the neural elements. If the spine is straight, i.e. no deformity, then decompressing the nerves directly would be the traditional method. And what would that method entail traditionally? You would approach the spine generally posteriorly through a midline incision and using either microscope or loop magnification, attempt to decompress those elements that are compressed. That may be something such as a full laminectomy or a large laminoframinotomy. Essentially, with the more evolving minimal techniques, the idea is to try to disrupt the spine as little as possible and yet get a good view of the neural elements compressed and make sure you get a wide decompression of them. In the past, has this surgical intervention been successful? It is successful. It is a reliable technique. 
surgical outcome studies that bypass practitioners and go right towards patients should afford a 75 to 80% success rate. What it comes down to, though, when some of the other deformity issues are part of the clinical picture, such as degenerative scoliosis or degenerative spondylolisthesis, those two conditions substantially complicate the problem because the very act of decompressing the neural elements can undermine the deformity, and the deformity itself can actually progress as a result of treating the neural elements. And frequently, the traditional approaches to these conditions would be, in addition to the decompression, to add a fusion. And finally, what percent of your patients do you consider for any surgical intervention? I have a fairly broad spinal practice, and I would say roughly 25 to 30 percent of patients sent to me for evaluation, for surgical consultation, if you will, ultimately end up in the operating room. I want to thank Dr. Clifford Tribu, who has been our guest. We have been discussing spinal stenosis. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. And you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.